A real example would be HR, right? In most organizations, everybody says they want access to the HR data, but HR are never going to let you get access to it if they don't fully understand and trust what you're going to be doing with it, just because of the sensitive nature of it, right? And even when it's not sensitive, again, getting back to that sort of politics that I think IT and technology teams have been a convenient excuse for a long time about why we don't share data in organizations. But I think once you sort of take those excuses away, you still find that people don't want to do it because all of a sudden, you know, data lies less than people, right? And if you're not in control of your data, you're not necessarily in control of your narrative anymore about what your area is doing. And um, yeah, if you don't have those sort of universal metrics about, well, this is how we define this metric, you know, globally, then that becomes, you know, that's the next round of challenge, basically. On October 25th, we're coming back to Melbourne for our first physical MLOps event. Whether you are just starting in the MLOps journey improving in that space or whether you have thousands of models in production this event is for you the type of things we're going to cover is mlops for scale and that scale can be number of models or the number of people in the team or the number of prediction and inferences that need to be made in an hour or a minute or a second so how to create effective mlops for all those scenarios we're going to cover MLOps processes and team structures. How do we organize ourselves and the talent that we have in our organizations for better results in MLOps? We're going to be looking at creating efficient and effective MLOps pipelines in an end-to-end. What does the data look like, the feature stores, all the way to the model deployment, serving, monitoring, alerting, etc. We're also going to cover getting a C-level buy-in and support for the investment in this area. We're going to be covering what governance and good management looks like in this space. So wherever you are in your journey, the MLOps event in Melbourne on October 25th is going to help you increase the maturity of MLOps in your organization. I hope you can join us. See you then. I'd like to say a big thank you to our sponsors, Talent Insights. Talent Insights are Australia's leading specialist data recruitment business. With offices in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane, they're experts at providing recruitment strategy and building data teams for clients across industries Australia-wide. They provide recruitment solutions for all roles across the data lifecycle, including data engineering, data science, advanced analytics, customer and marketing insights, business intelligence, data product managers and data governance. They're skilled at finding the best permanent and contract hires for your business needs, as well as statement of work, project focus, data resources. At Talent Insights, relationships matter most. I can say from first-hand experience, Talent Insights are fantastic to work with. Whether you're a business leader within an HR network or a specialist data candidate, Talent Insights should be the first company you turn to for all your data recruitment needs. Find them at talentinsights.com.au. Hi, this is Felipe Flores. Welcome to Data Futurology. Today, we have a super special episode. We're going to be diving deep into data engineering, into what it can do, where it came from, where it's going, and how organizations can progress their journey leveraging this area of technology, of the data space, and how transformational it is. So I hope you enjoy it. We have joining us Rich Blue, who is the Chief Technology Officer at Aginic. Rich, how are you going today? Really well. Thanks, Felipe. And we have Nat Tronova. She's the data engineer at Agenic. How are you doing, Nat? Good, good. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat to us about data engineering in the space. Before we jump in, can I get you guys to introduce yourselves? Tell us about your role and your remit at the moment. We can start with you, Rich, and then go to Nat. 
Sure. Sounds good. Um, so I'm CTO at Agenic. Essentially, that means that I am responsible for kind of building the kind of team that we want to have at Agenic, which is actually pretty topical for today's talk. I do a little bit of this sort of thing and also sort of help support our business guys talking to execs. Just a lot of the work we do is very transformational. So it's kind of sort of trying to convince people that um, there are better ways uh, is a big part of what I do. Yeah, good man. And um, man, you've had an awesome background by, you know, being being CTO before. You've also been pretty high up at, at calls and ThoughtWorks. Give us a, a 30 second on, on that side of your experience. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I've always actually started my career in data. I started in Australia, um, but I wasn't here for very long in the beginning. Um, did a long stint at Disney, um, working in sort of global teams, both in sort of more on the application space and, and data and got into all the agile and all that sort of stuff, um, came back to Australia. And yeah, I was uh, was a CTO of another startup um, up in Queensland and then was a principal tech at ThoughtWorks for a few years and then um, took on head of data at Coles where we launched um, the sort of first big cloud data platform uh, for them, uh, which was which was ambitious, I would say, but, uh, but ultimately we did get there. Yeah, amazing, amazing. And now, how long with Agenic? About two years? Uh, just over a year, actually. So it's coming up to 18 months at the end of the year. Yeah, amazing. Oh, that's great. Thanks, mate. Um, and Nat, how about, how about yourself? Can you tell us a little bit about, about your, your background and your role? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm a data engineer at Agenic. I started out as a data analyst at the very top of the BI stack and then slowly moved backwards worked in the sweet middle and now I'm kind of doing more of a data engineering sort of things. Um, and I've been with Agenic for around four years. So that was quite a transformation to go from data analytics to the data engineering space. Yeah, in a short amount of time. Um, how, how beneficial do you see it having that experience as, as an analyst, as you said, in the top of the stack? How valuable has that been as you've been going deeper into the stack? I think it kind of helps you talk with the business because you know what they're looking for because you've worked with them more closely before. Mm -hmm. So that helps a lot. And you understand better what kind of data they need, what are their requirements, things like that. So it's easier for you to translate their business requirements into more technical requirements. Yeah, very nice. And do you see, um, um, do you recommend people to to move throughout the throughout the stack uh, in their career um, and if so do you have a, an order of preference uh, understanding that there might be some some bias there but I think it's a good good question <laughs> yeah I mean yeah sure um, I think it kind of makes sense um, to start with the very top and then move to the bottom because there are not that many degrees that will get you that will lend you into that engineering space so wherever you start you'll have to do a lot of self-learning and like do lots of projects, um, kind of catch up with the data, with the data space. So it makes sense to start at the very, very top in the analytics space and then move slowly backwards, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I can see um, yeah, a lot of benefits from uh, understanding business requirements and dealing with stakeholders and also the, the data structures that are going to enable um, analysis and being able to, um, you know, contribute to those discussions as well. Because um, I can see sometimes uh, data engineers coming into the field, they, they want kind of more, more prescriptive uh, data structures as a target 
um, and it helps create those interfaces, but having the knowledge from the other side definitely helps uh, speed things up. Um, so with that, I might um, switch over to, to you, Rich, and I wanted to, to ask you if you can give us a bit of a um, overview of, of that engineering, uh, where you see it, uh, where's, where's it at at the moment, um, we can maybe we can we can start there and then discuss where where it's going and the difference it can make. But let's start with where where is it at at the moment? How do we get here? It's a good question. Um, so I think you know the way I'll probably answer it is a little bit roundabout. But I think for me, I mean, I, I sort of mentioned earlier that I started my career in in data, um, doing a bunch of BI. I was doing this is early days at, at Disney and actually back at my very first job was actually at OzPost as a consultant. Um, Way back when, doing um, doing BI stuff and a mix of of um, sort of backend uh, development as well, but um, I kind of left that space. Worked very heavily in in sort of app, app development for a long time. You know, went through the whole journey of moving to the cloud and distributed computing and you know microservices and Kubernetes and all the all the things basically that we kind of uh, see as pretty standard today. And then coming back into data maybe five years ago now. Been kind of shocked that um, that essentially nothing had changed since yeah. you know basically the late nineties. It's still still exactly the same, and I found that pretty pretty horrifying. Um, started to see some stats around you know the percentage of projects that actually succeed in the data space. You know, like when you're suddenly responsible for building a large platform, you know, you start to wonder about you know well is this going to work? Like who else has done this? And then you start to find out that actually most of them fail. Um, which doesn't exactly fill you with confidence. But then when you look at why they fail and kind of what the state of the data engineers is, you realize that, well, actually, it's maybe not that surprising because we used to have that problem in software as well. You know, um, you know, back in the days when we had, you know, the more waterfall-style projects with testing at the end and, and all of this sort of um, heavy kind of legacy ways of doing things is still kind of the way most data projects work at enterprises now. It doesn't mean that that's the case everywhere. I mean, it's, and, and I guess we're going to talk a little bit more about, you know, what the future can look like and, and what we're already seeing in some places because there's actually a number of companies that are already working in the future as far as everyone else is concerned. Um, but, yeah, look, I think getting back to it, we've, we've essentially become reliant on big data tool providers to sort of provide us with sort of low and no-code solutions. Um, I think that's largely as a sort of response to the fact that there just aren't any engineers in the data space typically you can't find people to build it in a different way so you're relying on on kind of um the dream of being able to have a tool do most of the work for us but the reality of course is that that never really comes true um there's just way too much complexity uh in what we're trying to do um also i think what makes it a bit harder is that um unlike maybe a pure app space you know what we call the the business which is another whole problem on it the fact that we have that distinction at all um, but the, the business guys generally have a lot more to do with data than they do in a, in a software project. And so while that sort of um, dysfunction exists between those kind of parts of organizations, um, which it inevitably does uh, in, in every large organization, um, then I think it's kind of inevitable that you end up with, with sort of a, a pretty dysfunctional sort of environment and um, people aren't working together in the right ways. We don't have the right tools. We don't have the right mindset. Um, and so that's, yeah, that's kind of what I'm, I'm passionate about trying to change. Nice. And tell me, tell me a bit more about the, the distinction, uh, between, you know, 
a tech and business or, or delivery and the, the stakeholders? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I always, I mean, as a consultant, I've been a sort of in a consultancy, you know, not that much in my career, more I've been on the other side in, in the actual, um, in the IT teams, typically at big enterprises, you know. Um, but yeah, there's, I think it's, if you see, if, if there is an IT team and, and somebody's using the term the business, then you, you already know you're in trouble pretty much. Um, because modern sort of um, companies that really harness their technology well don't have that distinction. I mean, or if they do have an IT team, they're the guys that are doing things like Salesforce or your email and Outlook and Exchange and things in the background. They're not talking about operational business systems. Whereas, you know, most of these, um, most enterprises that we work with today, in fact, all of them, I would say, have got, um, you know, they can trust, you know, the technical operations of actual business things to, to a completely different department that they don't have anything really to do with. Um, and their relationship's usually pretty toxic. You know, they complain about what they get, how slow and expensive and bad everything is. And if you go to the IT side, they complain about how the business never knows what they want and they change their mind every five seconds. Um, whereas companies that are more in that digital native space that have grown up in the cloud don't, don't tend to have that distinction. Um, and as a result, their business people are a lot more technical um, often they're engineering led anyway. Um, and as a result, they've kind of managed to, to erase that sort of artificial boundary. Um, and, and as a result, they're just a lot more collaborative and a lot more productive and, and they can actually make decisions that, that make sense, you know, because like it or not in the digital world, you know, technology and is, is a huge part of, of your actual business these days, whether you yeah. kind of want to think of it or not. And are there any uh, key differences that you see between the organizations that have the distinction of, you know, the business and the delivery teams and the ones that, that don't? Are there, are there, for example, structural differences um, that, that make... Well, night and day, night and day. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, typically um, they tend to be a lot more product focused, um, even if they're not necessarily making a product, they're, they're just the way they sort of orient um, you know, they're much more in that sort of building the idea of, you know, we've talked about in Agile having cross-functional teams for a long time, but, you know, we still kind of, a lot of people still think that that means, you know, cross-functional in the sense of, well, we have, you know, developers and testers and QA people. It's like, well, actually, no, you need the business people in that in that team as well, right? Um, and the better you are at doing that, the more productive you can be. And there is a handful of companies around um, that I know personally that have kind of transformed from, a to B, like most of them start that, that way, if you like, you know, they start joined up and they never, they've never had the other, the other experience. Um, but I know, for example, um, from prior lives that REA is one example in Australia that, that actually shifted from a central IT team to a, to a sort of more uh, integrated team. And, and, you know, that was, I think, a large reason for their sort of success in the, in the early days. Nice. Yeah, that's really good. Good to know. Thanks. Um, and that, from from your perspective, how have you seen the the role um, change, evolve, and where where do you see it going? Um, I guess over the years, I've noticed that first um, it was um, UI first tools that you you would be using. Um, it will be drag and drop and things like that, um, precisely because uh, business users would want to be able to use that. So they um, would not rely too much um, on the data engineering people, data analysts and stuff like that. Um, but now I feel like they're understanding more and more that they need um, proper 
uh, proper engineering practices in, in place. So that's where we come in and that's how they're more, um, they, they, they like more working with us, I feel like. Um, so yeah, I guess that's one of the things I've noticed. Um, we are more um, software engineering focused. So we work less with the business and work um, more in the in the engineering space. Um, and that's why we are getting more and more software engineering practices um, in our workflow. Which practices, it kind of depends on the client and on the project um, that um, you're working on. Um, some of them, um, I just happy using like version control, things like that. Um, others are more sophisticated in their approaches. Um, but there is still quite a lot of stuff um, that we can be doing differently, I guess. Yes, yes, definitely. And as the, um, as the role um, evolves and I guess the, the discipline matures, um, do you think that there'll be parts of data engineering that will become a a solved problem uh, or will we get to a to a point where we have um, enough or too many data engineers where you know today they're a hot commodity and uh, the problems that data engineers are solving is our pain points for almost every business um, will we get to a point where we feel like as a um, um, that we feel like as a market, we feel like do we have enough data engineers and that there's parts of data engineering problems that are problems today, but that will be solved, solved, solved problems in the, in the future. Yeah, that, that, that's a good one. That's a really good question, actually. So I think uh, the, sh the short term, no, we're in trouble, um, to be honest, or if we're a data engineer, it's awesome because we've got lots of, uh, lots of, lots of people fighting over us, but um but yeah, look, I think eventually it will. I mean, I think we've sort of seen, I mean, again, I sort of look at this sort of growth curve along the lines of what happened in software. Like, and mm. remember, we're now talking 20, I think actually data is close to 20 years behind mm. software, right? Um, in, in terms of this sort of thing. And and we're now at a point where, you know, being a software engineer is cool. You know, there's, there's Netflix shows about it, you know. Um, you know, you know, when I started out, it was like, you know, it was pretty much, yeah not that um wasn't wasn't a cool job put it that way and being in data was probably extremely uncool yeah uh, and i think that's kind of changing um and i think there's a lot of interest um from uh people in software engineering especially even just the basic thing that salaries are typically like 30 percent higher you know in data engineering than they are in software engineering and um and so i think that will attract more and more people in, but I still think it's going to take a long time um, because all of the reasons that kind of held software back, we're, we're exploring, we're actually in a really interesting part. I, I think this is the best best news about, you know, the state of data engineering today is that it's the best time to get into it because it's still evolving and innovating really fast. And I don't think that that's going to stop. I think um, to answer your question about are there some solved problems, I think, Absolutely, we've already achieved some. The cloud has enabled essentially unlimited storage. Um, and now with platforms like, you know, whether it's Snowflake or Databricks or, or um, even something like Starburst, you know, unlimited kind of compute is now a thing, um, or at least effective unlimited compute, depending on how much money you want to spend. 
Um, I think it will continue to improve, of course. Um, but I think, you know, if you look back maybe even five years ago, that was still a really hard problem to solve. Uh, now it's kind of trivial. Um, but I think we're now facing into some more more um, the next sort of layer of gnarly problems, which are really around data management. Um, and I think we're going to talk a little bit about governance later potentially. But um, so that's that's certainly a, a, an area that, that's that's get a lot of um, focus at the moment. Um, but then I think there's also the whole cultural part between, you know, uh, I often sort of talk to people and say, well, you know, we can build these amazing answer machines, right? And you, you get that. But if you don't know what questions to ask it and you can't understand what it tells you, then what's the point? So I think on the analytics side of the house, you know, um, with, our, with our business users or with the people that need to be working in the business, um, they, they also need to go on a sort of an equivalent journey uh, of maturity as well. Yeah, I agree. That's that's ace. Um, and yeah, we'll come back to the, to the data management um, discussion around uh, current challenges and, and where um, with that area is at. Uh, but first, maybe we can we can quickly uh, go through some use cases, um, some of uh, the applications that you guys have, have worked on, uh, journeys on how that those um, projects or solving those problems uh, happened and uh, anything you can share with us from, from that perspective. Um, might throw it to, over to Nat uh, to, to kick us off. Sure. Um, so some of the use cases of um, us implementing the um, data platforms. Yeah. Um, I guess I've got a few in mind. We um, recently were working uh, with a healthcare organization that just embarked on this journey. Uh, and it was quite exciting because they had um, no idea where to start. But um, given that they were expecting a huge growth and stuff like that, they wanted to start it the right way. Um, so they came to us and they asked for recommendations on how they can first um, build something that is easy to maintain right now. Uh, when they're still small, they don't have too many data sources. Um, their business does not yet know what the data can do for them. But at the same time, the platform that can be um, kind of easy to grow um, as the business grows and um, that would be able to kind of um, deal with the, with um, more types of data, um, more data sources and more use cases and stuff like that. Um, so, well, the, 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 what we did is um, started build, building the data platform um, on, we can talk about the tools, right, on, on Databricks. Um, and uh, mainly that was to um, first um, allow them to have one central place for all the data, for um, know kind of what kind of data they're getting, know what kind of data uh, they're getting in and that what kind of data they're getting out. Um, get, make use of all the cloud um, stuff, but also not, um, um, have the choice of using um, languages that are familiar for them, but also be able to switch later on to like a more data engineering way of, ways of working. Um, there are a bunch of difficulties they've encountered. The first one is um, kind of not having the, having to upskill themselves 
-hmm. from knowing not much about the data or knowing like pretty much nothing about the data to uh, being able to um, manage that platform once we are done. So within one year, uh, we had um, the data engineering, well, uh, BI team uh, going from being able to just um, build the dashboards and do the analysis there to managing the whole Databricks platform um, with um, a bunch of data pipelines that are sitting outside of the Databricks and with the, um, like writing their own transformations, writing their own views. Um, and pretty much taking it on board after a couple of months um, of setting things up. So that was quite exciting because um, because they went from nothing to like to like quite their a own managed like yeah to their own managed uh, BI platform. So that's one use case that came to mind like immediately because of um, the progress they've made within just one year. Mm. Yeah, that's 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 phenomenal. Um, sorry, Rich, were you gonna? Yeah, I was gonna say, like, I mean, one of the sort of common themes because we do do a lot, obviously, um, is that we sort of take people and and um, we might be doing an evaluation or we might be um, helping them with a specific problem that they have. But we have another another really large client um, in the insurance industry uh, who we're actually uh, who are still on on the prem, um, but we're helping them. Um, get ready for the cloud and, uh, you know, introducing some of these newer technologies. So one of the other, um, one of the other technologies we commonly uh, would work with would be something like DBT, um, yeah. which we think is really fantastic for um, taking sort of teams that have maybe been that sort of old school ELT, you know, they're working in, you know, data stage or SSIS or something like that. And, you know, putting all their logic in, in the, in the, in the, in the pipes, um, <clears throat> which we, you know, Again, no from software world is a very bad idea. Um, and uh, so bringing in some proper discipline, you know, DBT being, you know, highly opinionated about, you know, how you should actually go about doing um, doing doing data pipelines and stuff. But but I guess the point there is with the client, it's, it's all about upskilling their team. Not so much, I mean, yes, obviously they're going to end up with better um, with better tech and with better capability, but, but ultimately what we're really trying to do is teach them how to fish, you know, teach them how to, um, how, how to teach their data people how to actually do the, you know, how to do good practice and and, um, and also teaching their kind of exec and their business people about what they should expect, you know, in terms of quality, what what a good one looks like. You know, I think that's that's the biggest challenge a lot of the time is that people have they've never seen what good looks like. It's very hard to, to get there. Yeah, that's right. They don't, they don't know what... Um either what to shoot for or what they could be missing out on uh, by by not knowing not knowing that gap um but yeah it's really interesting because in those um in those examples there's there's a business transformation that uh, needs to occur or is occurring as part of the um as part of the the project delivery the the upskilling uh moving on to new platforms um how 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 do you see the the business transformation or the digital transformation? I guess as a as a broader umbrella, what are some of the the issues that you see companies having in either embarking on that journey or or successfully completing um, that that journey? The main one, I think, um, is is when people try to, to bite off more than they can chew. Um, 
you know, I think it's it's people get excited going, oh, okay, I've seen that, I went to this talk or I've read this book or I've seen, I've talked to my friend at a different company or, or whatever. Um, and then they go, right, we're going to transform everything. Um, and inevitably those things don't go that well because it's probably like 100 times harder than, than what they think it's going to yeah. be. Um, so that's where... Look, it's it's very hard. Is the short answer to that question, like because you need to pick something that's like if you pick something that's really easy, then you'll go, oh great, we can do it, and then you'll kind of crash onto the next thing that's actually hard because you haven't really explored all of the issues. Equally, if you pick something too gnarly, then um, then you can kind of be discouraged early on that it will never work. So, so finding some use cases that are in the middle is important. Um, that that are sort of that explore enough of the problem space. Um, but, but a lot of the challenges actually revolve around structural problems, right? I mean, because we can go to a team and we can say, okay, your problem is um, you only release once a year and you've got a you've got a 12-week testing cycle, um, you know, and everybody hates you because it's so slow and expensive and cumbersome, right? Um, everything's manual. Um, and so... You know, if you were to sort of suddenly try to click your fingers and go, right, well, we're going to fix that everywhere, there's an enormous change management problem that, that suddenly comes into play. And it's not about the tech, really. It's about, well, you know, I can teach, you know, a team of 10 people how to do something, but how do I teach 1,000 people, 10,000 people? Like, that's a completely different problem. So um, so I think it's like, and most organisations just aren't that good at change, like, and I'm not saying that, that that we are particularly either. I don't think anybody is, right? It's a that's a really hard thing to do as well. Um, but I think if you can try to structure that change in a way that um, you're sort of biting off bite-sized chunks that you can actually achieve and accomplish, but have still have an overarching kind of strategy and a vision of what you're trying to get to, I think that's the that's probably the biggest key points. And 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 uh, and also making sure that I think companies. And I've seen this that are committed to a long-term approach, you know, that, that you know it's going to take five or six years and don't say, oh no, we've all got to be wrapped up in 18 months because I promised the board or the CEO. Um, those ones are more than likely not gonna, gonna pan out too well. I have something to add about the ones that are um, that want everything done within like six or eight months, stuff like that. Um a lot of times um, they really want to cut corners um, when they are doing the pipelines, when they're getting data to the users. They they want it now, they've promised it, and um, they're finding the shortcuts that are hurting them in the long run. So a few years later, when you go and look at their stack, it's all over the place. There are um, like 15, 20 ingestion patterns. There is not a single, um, there is not a single source of truth for the data and things like that. And even though they feel like they've made progress towards the the best practices as they see it, in reality, they've just got stuck. Um, they, they've taught A, the business and um, analysts and all the data uh, data people to follow follow their guts and yeah. follow like the practices they think are right. But in the end, it's just getting them deeper into the weeds um, and it's, make, it's making it much, much harder um, to to move forward with the data platform, it's like it's almost like you need to uproot everything and start from scratch. Yes. Ah, uh, yes, it's so true. And and often it, it that proliferation of different approaches happens, um, or sometimes it happens through uh, 
individual project teams working independently, kind of like sometimes in an agile manner that everyone tries to solve their own problem and move quickly and solve it kind of like their way. And then um, as that kind of happens more and more, uh, obviously this is not the only way to get into this problem, but as that proliferation grows over time, then you do need to draw a line in the sand and take a step back and say, well, shit, we got 30 of these. Um, we could have like two patterns that are reusable and that gives us a little more standardization and easier to manage. And, um, and then you got to take that, bite that bullet. Yeah, sorry, Nat. No, I was going to say, and that's why it's a good idea to take the business people on the journey and actually sit them next to you and show them exactly what you are doing. So when they oh. say, oh, why don't we take this shortcut? Um, you show them, well, if you take this shortcut, your data will be 70% correct. And that makes them think and appreciate all the hard work that goes into, in, into building the data platform. Sorry, Chibo. No, no, I was just going to say, look, I think it really, it's, it's a really good point. And something you said, Philippe, made me think about, um, like often, again, back to the transformation thing, like what makes them is the culture of the business mm. or the organization, right? Is, are you the sort of organization that is open to change? That is, you know, I've worked at so many places that say, oh, no, we, we encourage, you know, you to make a mistake, you know, we, we're right up until the point when you do. Yeah. And then they're like, oh. Bad, bad rating for you. You know, you made a mistake. <laughs> like, really? Okay. Um, but yeah, companies that actually, organizations that are that are truly embrace the, the sort of the idea of change is constant um, and are willing to sort of try stuff out. And, and, and people in those organizations aren't clinging to their roles and what they do with like a death grip. I think, you know, we find a lot of trouble, um, especially in more stagnant organizations where, we're going to make a change that's going to like literally change the roles of like lots of people, um, both in tech and in business. And maybe there's whole stratas that we're going to, you know, cut out. I mean, we do those, those lean value stream maps, right? And you sort of go, well, hmm, you're sort of taking this big detour in the middle through all these different places to get to where you want to go. You don't have to. But of course, all the people who are, who are the, on those detours don't, don't generally like the idea that they're going to suddenly be not included anymore. And um, yeah. So politics is a huge factor. So, you know, having having sort of, um, I mean, maybe it's just awareness about it, you know, and, and up front before you jump in that, that you're going to encounter some resistance and how do you actually um, plan for that? That's that's a key point too. Yeah, mate, totally, totally agree. Really good points. And that awareness at the beginning will definitely help um, because then that resistance will will always come i think <laughs> or at least start with the expectation that it's that it's coming so get get ahead of it um that's super helpful so in the um in the in the last little bit i wanted to see if we could jump into some of the the current issues where um that engineering is is um looking to solve um we spoke before about data management being one of those areas um could you tell us a little bit more about how those two intersect and what that 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 world looks like at the moment. Mm, yeah, well, it's a topic that comes up a lot at the moment. I'm talking to a lot of lot of clients about this. A lot of lot of senior execs as well um, are starting to become aware of this, which is great. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think um, as someone who used to actually own a, a data governance team, um, you know, and sort of bash my head against the wall for a couple of years there. Um, I'm sort of at the point now where I actually think that data governance as a concept just needs to completely die and go away. Um, I love it. 
purely because it doesn't work. And and what I mean by that is that once upon a time, you know, back to, again, back let's let's think about the lessons we've learned in, in software, right? Is that we used to have test teams, right? Um, and even be, and where do we get our ideas that that was a bad idea, right? We look back to you know lean manufacturing and Toyota and the idea that we don't fix defects at the end after we've already spent all this sort of energy and cost making them and compounding them. Um, maybe it's a better idea to actually correct them at the start when they happen and and actually aggressively building our sort of systems and our processes around removing defects early and keeping them out and keeping things clean. Um, mm-hmm. But if you actually look at data, that's almost the exact opposite way that we do things, right? We just let everything trundle along. We pollute our data streams with garbage data from, you know, from often from for decades, right? And then we sort of say, then we get an audit, you know, typically is what happens, right? These big companies and they go, oh, how are you doing data management? Where's your PII? You know, how do you manage this? How do you manage that? And inevitably the answer is like not very well. Mm-hmm. Um, so somebody goes, well, we need a data governance team to sort this out. And um, then usually like large organizations might have, you know, somewhere between two and 20 people that they assign. And, you know, it's it's not even like, trying to put out a bushfire with a garden hose. It's trying to put it out with a drinking store and a glass. You know, it's 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 pathetically, you know, um, inappropriate in terms of resourcing to solve that problem. And and even if you put a thousand people onto it, it still wouldn't work because it's at the end, it's too late. It's all these problems have already happened. Um, so culturally we need to go back, right? And and actually it's not about governance, it's about management, just basic data management. How do we how do we keep track of the things that we actually care about? Um, in a sort of, you know, obviously we don't want to do it. To, you don't want to apply full-on data quality tracking for everything necessarily, because um, that would be really expensive without a great deal of ROI. But but if you can identify the sort of key things, and and even in a big organization like a like a Coles, you know, there's there's really only about probably in the in the whole organization, there's maybe only you know twenty or thirty data sets that you've really got to worry about keeping clean. Um, uh, and and but we don't. Or at least not not in any sort of structured way. But I think what's really interesting is that there's other, there's obviously plenty of companies out there doing that really really well. You know, like if you went to a, you know, I've got friends that work at the fan companies in, in the US and and here, and you know the way they manage their data is just phenomenal. They know where everything is all the time, um, pretty much. I mean, I might be overselling it slightly, but but they they certainly know where their important data is, and and the people who need to get access to it can can get it when they need it, and. As a result, all the things that, you know, your data governance organizations are typically concerned with, you know, like where is data, who is accessing it, is it protected, is it safe? Uh, all that stuff just drops out because um, because you're already doing it. Um, and you're not doing it for sort of regulatory or risk management purposes. You're doing it for commercial purposes, which is actually like 100 times more valuable to you as an organization um, than just being compliant, right? So. So I think we need to sort of yeah step away completely from this idea that we can somehow retrospectively fix our data um, and actually focus more on keeping it clean and good in the first place and building in those systems and processes that 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 do it. Which is again, if we go back to things like DBT, the fact that it's got you know uh, testing in it and it's got lineage built into it. You know, um, I mean, ultimately, I still think that you know we need to go much further than than yeah. than. You know, it's not the whole answer for everything, but it's a great start. Um, and there's a lot of innovation going on in the in the sort of data management tool space, which um, which we're sort of beating the drum about with our with our customers, saying, "Hey, look, you know, 
you might still be worried about storage and compute because you're asking us to help you migrate off some you know SQL server that's exploding in your on-prem environment. But trust us, that's not the problem that you need to worry about now. Like, yeah, we'll fix that. We'll move you to the cloud. We'll get you onto a modern platform that, that those issues will just vanish. But you're immediately going to hit the next series of problems, which is like, where is my data and who's got access to it? And, and, and I can share it now. Technically, I can share it. But, you know, want a real, like a real example would be HR, right? In most organizations, everybody says they want access to the HR data, but HR are never going to let you get access to it if they don't fully understand and trust what you're going to be doing with it, just because of the sensitive nature of it, right? And even when it's not sensitive, again, getting back to that sort of politics that I think IT and technology teams have been a convenient excuse for a long time about why we don't share data in organizations. But I think once you sort of take those excuses away, you still find that people don't want to do it because all of a sudden, you know, data lies less than people, right? And if you're not in control of your data, you're not necessarily in control of your narrative anymore about what your area is doing. And um, yeah, if you don't have those sort of universal metrics about, well, this is how we define this metric, you know, globally, then that becomes, you know, that's the next round of challenge, basically, is, is sticking into that. So I think that's a much more fruitful and productive, um, you know, area to kind of spend energy on than, than you know, trying to retrospectively you know, lock down everything and run reports on where, where our PI data is. Yeah, definitely. Oh man, that's such a such a good approach. I like I love it. I love it. That's exactly what we what we need. Um some more more data management, fixing it at the source, know where your data is, bring in testing, as you said, um, lineage also really important. Um and well, very heavy heavy automation as well. I mean that's the key because the thing about data is, you know, like most organizations are really limping along with a very small amount of data, you know, because they remember they're constrained by by compute and storage at the moment. You know, second they move to the cloud, that goes away and and their problems explode a hundredfold. You know, like now they've got data everywhere and they don't know, which is the old data swamp problem, right? You know, and mm -hmm. um, yeah. So the answer isn't to go back to just structured data and data warehouses. It's actually we need we need something new. Yeah, agreed, mate. That's ace. Just look at the time. I can't believe the time's gone so so quickly. So the one last thing I wanted to ask you is where can people find out more about you guys if they wanted to continue this discussion, if they wanted to chat about, you know, what's happening in their organization, what's the best way to reach out to you? Yeah, well, I mean, all the usual ways. I mean, agenic.com. I mean, we're now a part of the Mansell Group, which is a much bigger organization. So maybe, you know, lots of people probably already uh, in touch with with one of the Mantle brands. So um, if that's the case, then just reach out through that. But otherwise, yeah, hit us up directly on, on LinkedIn or, or email. Amazing. Amazing. And we'll include your LinkedIn links on the show notes. We'll also include your homepage. And Nat, Rich, thank you so much for taking the time this morning to um, share with us your perspectives and your experiences. It's been super, super useful and insightful to get to see what's happening in the data engineering space. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me, great. Thanks for having us here. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.